Welcome to the Week in Sports Cars, uh, Japanese hotel edition, uh, with thanks as always to our sponsors, uh, the Justice Brothers and Cooper Tyres. It's going to be me, Graham Goodwin, editor of dailysportscar.com, and him, Stephen Kilby, deputy editor of dailysportscar.com, WC reporter for uh, Vesa.com, out here for the six hours of Fuji tomorrow. Uh, we are uh, doubly... Um, Backed this weekend by Blendy Stick. Blendy Stick, the revolting sounding but actually delicious uh, sweetened instant coffee product available at all 7 Elevens here in Japan, and by Snickers and Kit Kat uh, in the desperate evening's rush to try get Twisk uh, out and to you within a reasonable time. Um, we're here and, uh, well, what can I say? Fed and watered by those fine people at 7 Eleven, one on every street corner in Japan. Every street corner in Japan, and no, we're not kidding. Um, it's been a spectacular weekend so far. The fantastic Fuji Speedway, the beautiful uh, Mount Fuji, with the exception of yesterday, firmly on display. Beautiful sunshine here, uh, weather in the high 20s, and um, qualifying over today, and uh, yet again, the now traditional post-session uh, disqualification or withdrawal of times from somebody again unfortunately affected Ben Keating a grub screw missing from the quick release door mechanism uh, deemed to be a safety violation and Ben therefore loses his first WC pole position um, we'll I guess dust over that one Stephen I'm sure there's questions on similar things because let's face it probably happened last week and the week before as well uh, I am beginning to lose my sense of humour on these things mind you uh, but we're going to do this one in a different way and we're going to do it in a different way for two very important reasons one because we're really really tired and two because we're really really lazy and instead of theming these questions although there's a degree of thematics about this it's sort of run what you brung with a came is that right? Yeah, I, it, we're going to group the topics together, but we're not going to... I can't say topic, it's Snickers and Kit Kat. <laughs> but, but we're not going for the, the traditional Imza, Elmzako, the Herr the fun. It's just going to be quick, it's going to be quick fire, it's going to be, you don't know what's coming. Yeah, effectively, effectively, we're going to machine gun our audience. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Questions and answers. By the way, Sam, you can hear here, is indeed a Kit Kat. Um, that looks very different. And why why do we buy Kit Kats when we're abroad? Just to make sure they taste the same. They, got and they, taste don't. The same. they don't taste the same because sugar is different in different countries. There you go. But you learn all sorts of things here on the weekend sports cars. Fire away, young man. Yes, okay. So I think we should begin by talking about the LMP2 news that we've had over the past couple of days. We had the World Motorsport Council bulletin regarding changes to the class for next year. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a few questions about that from Right to Lover. We've had uh, James Hewitt in on that, Michael Metro, son of Aris. Um, all asking roughly the same thing. They want to know, I, I guess, first off, impressions we have of slowing down the P2s with, with what we believe to be rev limits and extending the current um, chassis eligibility for, for an extra year to the end of 2022. And all the things are full up that. First, first things first, if you don't look what, what the World Motorsport Council is, uh, imagine the world's worst party with all the fun sucked out of it. And that's broadly what the World Motorsport Council is. It's basically the meeting of all of the Um, the member bodies of the FIA, uh, so effectively the auto clubs from your home countries, 
who meet together to decide whether or not they're going to say yes or no or maybe to a whole range of motorsport matters. In this instance, the question before them was uh, whether or not the current LMP2 cars should be uh, slowed down um, to accommodate the forthcoming hypercar regulations. This, of course, would be for FIWC competition. The answer was that they said that, yes, they should be. And whilst there's no firm direction been offered yet, what we absolutely believe from talking to a number of people in the know here is that reducing the rev limit on the uh, 4.2-litre Gibson V8s, uh, dramatically different, actually, from some of the things that have been done in IMSA, are very much on the agenda. What do I think? I think it's a shame. Um, I think it's inevitability. Uh, I think we could we could sit and you know scream and shout and stamp our little feet all we liked. The reality is we're in a different era. Uh, the ACO are going down the road of uh, hypercar. We can give you a little bit of an update on some of that as well uh, with some more details on DSC and on uh, race.com to come in the coming days. But uh, the reality is those cars will be slower than the current LMP1s, which are bonkers fast. and uh, Never more bonkers fast, actually, than they've been here this weekend, by the way, with uh, speed records being broken already at Fuji Speedway, not by the Toyotas, but by the Ginetta. Um, pretty spectacular 203 miles an hour down that spectacular um, main straight we've got here um, so they are going to be slower in race pace remember that's the key race pace around maybe a little just under uh, 330 uh, that is going to require the LMP2s if they're going to be separated out from the new top class to be slowed down a tad uh, and yes rev limits it looks like it's going to be I've had a conversation with a couple of people who know those engines well what they've said is not a dramatic difference in terms of running costs not a dramatic difference it will help with the mileage those engines get um, LMP2 has been I think a pretty spectacular success in terms of the numbers of cars out there well over 20 cars worldwide closing on 30 and uh, further news stories by the way to come about more takers for uh, the LMP2 class one team and we're not saying any more than that we spotted in the paddock uh, this weekend here at Fuji that we know is coming uh, others I believe coming in behind as for the um, questions about whether or not they should prompt to rethink about the um, the, the Joker packages doesn't look like that's going to happen does it? No it, I've spoken to a few people in the paddock like you have Graham this weekend and there's plenty of negativity towards this change as a whole and I think when you pose the question about whether this is an opportunity to maybe give the the Dallara Leisure um, I guess Multimatic chassis a bit of a leg up that because it, because it's an unknown um, and because of what the regulations say uh, there isn't as much takers, I don't think, in that as, as, as you'd expect. And I think that's partly because there's been so many teams that have made the switch that if they make the switch in the past what, six months or, or a year, um, then they don't want to see the chassis that they've abandoned um, on the basis that they didn't think these joker packages would, would come through again. Uh, that they wouldn't, they wouldn't want to see them all of a sudden make gains. I mean, Richard Dean was particularly from from United Sports was particularly vocal about that Be- because he's already made the jump. I yeah. think this is the thing. Had it happened a year ago, maybe we're talking something different. What do I think? Cutting through all of that, do I think a mistake has been made here? Yeah, I do. I think the um, the Joker uh, package, and if you're not familiar with that that um, uh, that term, that was a process whereby. 
there was some rebalancing or attempt at rebalancing through revised aerodynamics in other words the other manufacturers Multimatic uh, Delara and Ligier the current P2 um, class were allowed another go at it within some pretty firm restrictions and pretty clearly it wasn't enough Um, the Orica which did have an advantage coming into this because it was the one um, package that had the chassis carried over the previous iteration the Zero 5 it's effectively the same chassis did have that advantage but the reality is they used the experience they'd had in LMP2 and for that matter in LMP1 with a number of previous um, packages they put together and put together a better car put together a car that's got a broader operating window and you know by all accounts or other elements of those packages including choice of gearbox etc that appears to have actually come up trumps and produced well the cream of the crop uh, I do feel for the other manufacturers I think it could have been handled better and earlier I understand reasons why um, they didn't want to go further with that process I happen to think in terms of the marketplace it will prove to be a mistake it's not to say that we're not getting good racing with the Orica dominated um, grids that we've got at the moment in WEC and in EMS where you get spectacularly good racing but I do rue the uh, the lack of variety that's beginning to emerge from it mm. there was an interesting side note question from Right Turn Lover on this he says will the rev, rev reduction of the LMP2 Gibsons negatively impact the drivability for genuine amateur drivers can you make of that I think the answer is ask the guys who are driving these cars in IMSA and I think the answer is no um, it does blunt the performance but the actual drivability I think is more or less there and you know these are clever guys at Gibson and I think if there are changes that need to be made in terms of the way that the uh, the mapping of those engines is done to, to increase the drivability they'll do exactly that mm. let's move on and I think the, the other big topic of the week is Can't the say topic ah, big subject talking yep, point yep no um, more chocolate being mentioned other than our sponsors here at, uh, tw- uh, this evening at uh, Kit Kat and Snickers. And by the way, if you're listening, Kit Kat and Snickers, our addresses are available online. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the other big talking point of the week well is done. the the reveal, the surprise, in quotation marks, reveal of the Corvette CAR um, in Cape Canaveral. This um, one, your we- Corvette? I think so. Okay. I think so. Is it a Certainly a, corv- a convertible one. I don't know if that's the race car. That can't be that. No, that they wouldn't do madness. that. That's not. They're not spiker, are they? They wouldn't do that. Um, so yeah, we we saw that out of nowhere. We didn't realise it was going to come this quickly, did we? I was on a metro train in the middle of Tokyo. To be honest with you, <laughs> we'd just been for sushi, but uh, but so uh, when we got that one, but yes. So what's your ten cents on it, Graham? The, the Corvette CR. What do you think? Um, new is good. I think it's, it's fair to say uh, GTE at the moment and GTLM uh, in US Ponons needs a bit of a kick in the pants right now. It needs some new blood. Unfortunately, one downside is this is not a new manufacturer coming in. It's a replacement for a current much-loved um, car, the C7R. So new is good. I'm not getting into the kind of is a mid-engine car, real Corvette, blah, 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 blah. No, not interested. I'm finding the debate about the engine quite amusing um, in that lots of guesswork clearly came forward um, and lots and lots of that guesswork has proven to be wrong. Looks to be a kind of flat plane. um, It's the V8. uh, V8. Um, 
we'll hear a lot more about that at particular moment. I know that much. I know there's the plan to reveal a lot more in terms of the technical package. There's clearly going to be further changes. Uh, you know, we've already seen the more than a rumour around Jan Magnussen and Jordan Taylor uh, coming out of the woodwork before we saw the car. Uh, we're yet to see the final um, confirmation of exactly where and when we will see that car racing. We're expecting it to be racing for the full season in the uh, IMSA Weather Tech Sports well, Car we, Challenge. We, know, we certainly know it's going to debut at Rolex. We do that. Uh, we expect that to be the core programme. We don't know but can presume that f- through whatever way they've managed to do it, we will probably see that car at Le Mans, and, and I'm guessing that because simply... Yeah, the well, the Le Mans, the Le Mans.org website, uh, the Le Mans Twitter account um, have already sort of hinted that we want to see it racing at Le Mans, and it... And I think, if I'm rightly, the Le Mans website actually stated that it's a car that looks like it will be racing at Le Mans in 2020. Yeah. Um, I mean, if Le Mans.org say it, you'd expect that it will happen. But that is... It's as if Pierre Fionn is typing it himself. It, yeah, it is a strange one, that, isn't it? Because technically, it's not eligible, is it? Well, let's wait and see. I think the answer is, I welcome it. We, we need some good news right now in sports car racing. Well done to GM and to Corvette Racing for bringing forward something that does look very different. Uh, we'll come to colour scheme in a minute. Uh, we've had the chance to hear that car with various media clips that are coming forward. It sounds dramatically different from the current C7R. But it does but sound loud. And it sounds loud. It sounds a bit of a beast. And that's uh, you know what's going to be interesting is what it's going to be sounding like you know, on a long full throttle. Uh, that's going to be kind of, uh, I think, quite an interesting one. Colour scheme. Uh, they've massively changed the game there with silver and yellow and yellow and silver. Um, we do take the mickey out of uh, Corvette Racing and the fantastic PR guy Ryan every opportunity we've got um, we, we've talked uh, uh, more than one occasion is that they don't need a heritage livery and even if they did take a heritage livery the reality is they're going to have to go back quite a long way for that heritage livery not to be exactly the same as the current livery they've got but they've also got some heritage drivers so you know that, that's, a, that's a good thing too Let's wait and see. I think we're going to get some more surprises when we get to Petit Le Mans about this programme. I think there's more to hear about it. Um, I'm not expecting any massively dramatic surprises, but I think we could see a few more changes to come. Mm. Okay. What do I think? I like it. Yeah. I like uh, new. It looks a lot better, as pretty much every car does, when it's out of the camo and out of the spy shots and Completely. in a proper race livery. I think it looks stunning. It looks, if you squint your eyes, a bit like a sort of Honda NSX type Don't of thing. say that. But it, but it, and I like that. That's a good thing. Honda NSX is the world's most bizarre kind of. You know, Honda NSX. Here's the weirdness: there are now two, two frontline Honda NSX race cars, the GT3 and the GT500. Mm-hmm. Neither of which, but any relation whatsoever to the road car, that the GT500 is, is a front-engine car as opposed to a mid-engine car, and the G, and the, um, the GT3 car is not a hybrid, and you can't buy a non-hybrid road car. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all good. It's great to see Honda there, but no, it, I, I know what you mean. It's got that kind of from the sort of it's, it's the similar sort of silhouette, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, same. it's it's there, there is an element here of if you put in to I'm not going to say a bog standard supercomputer that's there to actually tell you the kind of the dimensions you can have within current regulations and add in. You know, a little bit of it's got to be mid-engine. It's got to be a bit edgy. You're going to get the same answers. <laughs> There's not. It's not. It doesn't take a genius to realise why so many modern cars in various um, classes come out, debadge them, 
take off a little bit of the trim and they look pretty much the same. It's because if you give a computer the same numbers, it's going to come up with the same answers. Mm. Yeah, and I, I like the idea of having two different liveries. I liked it in the past when they did one black, one yellow. I think that's great. Goodies and buddies. Goodies and buddies. Great. Um, so, yeah, we have, I think you already just mentioned that, Graham, but uh, we have had a question from Whoopity Scoop Poop about Jan Magnussen um, <laughs> speaking uh, and sort of asking who will replace him if he retires. Um, we, we believe we kind of know the answer on that well, one. Well, we, we? you know, it looks very much as if um, Jordan Taylor has got a full time future with Corvette Racing. That's good news for a whole range of reasons. Um, the sad news is it looks as if that's going to be at the expense of a fine servant to Corvette Racing for many, many years, Jan Magnussen. And all I'd say on that front is, if this is the end of, uh, of, of Jan's time, uh, I'd like to think that Corvette Racing would do right by him in terms of making sure that those that have loved watching you know, his successes, and for that matter, his heroic uh, f- f- you know, falling short down through the years, because they're just as excited to watch would be rewarded with an opportunity to say goodbye properly. I don't know how what or how that would look, but that, I think, for me, would be an essential. Um, you know, we're not talking here about a guy that's had three good years. We're talking here about a guy that's had a better part of two decades and has brought some fantastic success to a fantastic race team. So all I'd say there is, you know, Jan, if you're listening, you're fabulous. You always were. You always will be. Um, with whatever comes next, if if the, the more than rumours are true, and I know that they are, um, then I hope it brings you happiness. But for right now, if anybody's listening at Corvette Racing, I'd like to see something done that actually marks, you know, the end of that career with your. It's not the end of his career; that's for him to decide. Um, but uh, the end of the career with Corvette Racing, um, appropriately for someone who's brought so so much success, so many big wins, so many unbelievably ballsy drives down through the years I'd like to think that it won't be the last that we see of him in sports because whether that's him stepping away from racing and doing something more managerial uh, I know the IMSA president position is coming up can we see him do that no um, but he's one of those figures a bit like Tom Christensen where I expect to see him around paddocks I expect to see him involved in the sport well his son's involved in the sport it's a family yeah. business and you know I can't, I can't see that he would walk away and smoke a pipe and you know, eat a packet of wine gums, or indeed a Snickers or a Kit Kat. Sponsors this week of the Week in Sports Cars. Hashtag uh, not topic. Hashtag not topic. But either way, great servants of the sport deserve respect, mm. and that's what I'd be looking for for Jan. Floodman11. Yay! Hello. He says, <clears throat> what's up with the golf racing team no longer being sponsored by golf? Are you able to shed light on that? Graham, you are. I am. I spoke to Mike Rainwright. Of course, we realised that that was going to happen. Uh, as we arrived here, what no one had really noticed was that uh, actually that change came before Silverstone. And whilst the car still carried the golf colours, it didn't carry the golf logos, neither did the garage. Uh, no one had seen that. I'd heard there might be a possibility this had happened, and frankly, I missed it the same as everybody else did. Is that uh, because it was the two paddock system during that weekend and neither of us had any chance to do anything? It's, it it's either that or I didn't have a blendy stick and therefore was uh, not at my, uh, my kind of peak performance. Um, and I will admit that I don't think I popped into their garage during that week no. that week either. Because barely it was. went into the WC paddock during that weekend. There you go. Yeah. But um, does seem to be a result of a change in direction from Golf Oils and their marketing strategy. Um, I don't think he's particularly uh, Mike's particularly unhappy about that. The reason the team name, by the way, stays the same is because for uh, a WC competitor, you effectively have a license for that entry. That is a license against a team name, 
and the team name is Golf Racing UK. Last time this kind of thing happened, you will recall, was with the uh, the Manor Run CFC TRSM efforts, and that caused all sorts of issues. When issues started to emerge for the team in terms of the commercial package, you couldn't rename the team. And since one of the commercial backers was the aforementioned CEFC, that became a bit of a millstone. So it is a bit of an issue if things emerge after you've committed to uh, a particular team name. Another great example of it, by the way, Team LNT. Team LNT is a real race team. They clearly have strong links with the Geneta family, but uh, you ask Lawrence Tomlinson, he will tell you that, you know what, that was a bit of a placeholder while they got their ducks in a row as things turned out. If they weren't in a position at the stage where you had to commit to change the team name, Team LNT Geneta is, is the way it will continue. Do you, do you agree with that, Rob Grant? Because I feel like we've especially in championship like we've got with private privateers and customers coming in and out it should for me it should be done the case by case basis being able to change the team because say say you're a team like golf racing or say you're just you know uh, a another privateer team and you get a major sponsor mid-season you can't mm-hmm. attach that sponsor's name to your team name can you you can't um uh, slightly torn by it i'm not a particular lover of Regulation of these kind of things, but I can see why you want to keep it neat and tidy. It's a world championship, you know. You 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 should be looking to keep it neat and tidy. We, you and I, often complain about championships that, that consistently describe cars in different ways from one week to another, whether it's the team name or the sponsor's name, and you know you you could at times find it difficult. Australian GT, we're looking at you. Australian GT, we are looking at you. But um, I get why they want that order. But I would agree with you. I think there should be a process whereby you can apply apply that change. It might be. You know what? Let's face it, everything else in the FIA has got a bill. There might well be a bill attached to that. But if it's worth your while to make the change, then that should be accommodated. One of the major reasons, by the way, that that changes are not accommodated is because of the vast array of printed materials that are pre-prepared and would have to therefore be either inaccurate against a revised team name or changed. So my guess is it's as simple as this. You want to make the change, there'll be a cost to that. Mm. And I don't see that as being a problem. Mm. Next up on uh, USCR Reddit, Buybuckeye4243 says, how do you think Reese will fare in their comeback? And if they do well, do you, do you think they will come back full-time next year in IMSA? hope they do. Uh, they were missed at mid-Ohio. We all hope they do. I don't see it as the honest answer. I think Giuseppe Reese, one of the absolute gentlemen of the sports, will do what he can with what he's got. But um, like everybody else, these are tough times. And running a GTLM race car for a full season against full factory efforts is not uh, something that's easy to privately fund. Uh, there is no sign at the moment that, um, that Ferrari are going to pony up and uh, help that effort. And in fact, you and I were part of a conversation early this week mm. talking about a very significant team making an approach to Ferrari for an IMSA programme and that backing is simply not available. Some support available, but not full backing available to do even that. So I think the answer, unfortunately, is we'll see the Rizzi Competizione uh, Ferrari as and when Giuseppe and his various backers and customers decide that they've actually got a package to put together for that, and I don't see that being full season. I hope something can be brought together for the NAEC, but uh, there, that's that's me in in hope rather than immediate expectation. Sad boys, two men on uh, WC Reddit says Graham, has anything changed that you're aware of regarding the coverage of the 2020 Le Mans 
uh, for running at the Le Mans 24 Hours for Americans. Is Motor Trend going to go with the same broadcast this I, year? I'll stop. Oh, blah, blah, blah. I have no idea. I have no idea about the um, the uh, the current negotiations about the uh, the TV rights. Uh, I get the impression that there's no immediate urge to change that. Uh, I know that, that is a somewhat divisive move. Um, certainly, I feel there needs to be some changes uh, in terms of who sees what, who's got the right to see what. But the reality is I am a mere pawn in this game. Uh, when I have got the opportunity to actually uh, express a view, I express a view. But the reality is, you know, I'm in a kind of slightly difficult position, of course, because not only am I someone who, you know, has a business in daily sports car with a right to comment on it, I'm also part of it. Uh, and that does make life a little bit more difficult. It has its advantages. It means you can talk to some of the people directly directly involved in this. It has its disadvantages in that clearly you don't want to get that to the stage where that becomes too much of a hobby horse that you actually make yourself surplus to requirements and that is very much what funds me to be at many of these races let's make no mistake so I hope we have a solution which expands the audience and expands the quality quotients of that output because there's plenty of very high quality output available uh, I hope that's the case I'll do my bit as best I possibly can but I'll say again for the 95th time if you didn't like it write to the people that matter do it politely Tiger 380 on WC Reddit chimes in uh, saying from my understanding the different screw being uh, the less than required length by the leaders in the Mitchell Le Mans Cup race at Spa gave no tangible performance gain so why were these teams disqualified not just to fine handed out like other technical infringement i.e. was it safety rate that's interesting we were discussing this we were discuss- because we always discuss post-session penalties in the car on the way back from a press room because it seems to be occurrence every single week we do while well, we were going to 7-Eleven to actually get the Snickers and the Kit Kat yeah. uh, the answer is it is a safety related matter and the reason for that is has been determined that the that just to explain this this was the three top cars in this bar race for the Michelin Le Mans Cup the LMP3 and GT3 um series that supports the European Le Mans series uh, more or less everywhere and the top three in that race were disqualified um, because all three of them all three were normal M30 LMP3 cars had fixing bolts for the um, crash box the front of the monocoque uh, that had shorter than regulation fixing bolts it should be 25mm in one instance, I think one of the bolts was as small as 7mm, uh, but none were longer than 15 It's a safety violation because you can presume that if a safety element of the chassis is fixed with a regulatory bolt of 25mm long, that that adds something to the crashworthiness of that component. The teams, and I've spoken to all of them, and they've all absolutely readily admitted that they shorten those bolts to actually shorten the time it would take in the case of an incident to change that element of the chassis, did so because, effectively, there was a performance advantage to them doing so in extremis if they had to deal with accident damage. The I think in this instance, much as I don't like the net effect, and I do think there's a level here where it's widely open to criticism because, of course, the next car up was another M30, so the fourth-place car actually... Uh, eventually won the race and because that crossed the line fourth didn't go to post-race scrutineering so it may well have been I'm not telling tales out of school because I don't know that had exactly the same issue 
you know, my guess is most of them did. So to a degree, this is, it's sort of a shot across the bows that actually blows the front off your ship, really, rather ironic way of describing it in these circumstances, in that effectively what they're doing here is saying, we know you're up to this kind of stuff, stop it, because these are the consequences if you found out. In that instance, I actually have less of a problem with it. In other instances, I have much more of a problem with it. I do think we've got to, into a place now where any tiny, tiny infringement is having a dramatic effect on race results and on championship standings. You know, we've had one today, and I've not spoken to the team yet, so I'll just describe what we know, and then I'll describe what we don't know. What we know is that Ben Keating um, is 57 Team Project One car after scoring his first uh, uh, pole position uh, with Team Project One in the WEC uh, was excluded from that uh, that pole because there was a, I believe, a grub screw missing uh, from the quick release door mechanism. Uh, so that affect the emergency door release mechanism, um, and that was deemed to be a safety violation. Th- that that's what we know. What we don't know is whether or not that quick release mechanism still functioned. If it didn't, then I, I'm here to say my view for what little that, uh, weight that carries. If it didn't, then that is a clear safety violation. If it did, then that should not be something that actually is uh, subject to a disqualification uh, from uh, from the it, it, from the, uh, the the results of qualifying. Let's wait and see whether or not that proves to be the case when we chat to the team tomorrow. But I think we need to get to the stage where. You apply regulations in exactly the same way as the rule of law is often applied, where in certain instances it is the net effect and not necessarily the crime that is actually what is punished. It's an interesting point of law, actually, that you know in very many cases punishments quite often outweigh the potential risk of the crime, depending on the way society determines the risk is. There's a great example, for instance, in road traffic law, worldwide very often between the uh, penalty you'll get for speeding and the penalty you'll get for driving under the influence of alcohol Uh, vastly different between the two penalties but the potential effects of you having an accident in either of those circumstances are more or less exactly the same so what you're doing is you're you're punishing the action because of the societal um, impact if you like the societal kind of acceptance of the crime and for for me here, if something's a mistake, I think there should be more sensible. If something's a very minor infringement, I think there should be more sensible. In cases where there's been an active um, decision made to uh, compromise safety, not that I think anybody would uh, actively compromise safety, or to enhance performance outside the regulations, that's a different kettle of fish. But I think we've crossed the line too often in the past, in the recent past, on those fronts. And I think we've got to the stage where... There needs to be a solid behind-closed-door set of uh, conversations about what the role is of those that look after the technical regulations and what it isn't. That's what I'll say. Mm. Next up, on a more positive note, we'll go to Kiwi Chris 1709 on uh, WC Reddit. He says, uh, I asked this question last week, didn't get answered, uh, so I'll ask it again. Good day, Graham and Stephen. In the wake of Scott Atherton's departure from IMSA, which sporting administrator do we think has had the biggest positive impact on sports car racing? I'm going to ask you that question first. I've got my answer ready, is the honest answer. For me, it's it's probably Stefan Rattel. It is. 
Yeah, there's no doubt in my I mind mean, it's definitely GT done. racing kind of owes itself to, to the guy. You, uh, you, we, can, we can moan about things that haven't gone right. We can and we moan do. about various um, you know, decisions and you know, direct, the direction that he's taken GT racing in the past 24 years. But my God, is it healthy. Well, I mean, the reality is if you value uh, GT3, GTD in the States, GT4, if you enjoy GT1... Um, the reality is, not just Stefan, but principally Stefan nowadays, is the man that you've got to thank. And you know his remarkably small team uh, down through the years is the man you've got to thank. And you're absolutely right, Stephen. It's spread far and wide, uh, that racing, and it's opened up the opportunities to manufacturers, to a vast array of teams, to a huge number of gentlemen drivers to be involved in the sport at quite a high level. And let's not forget critically for me that that aspect of it the gentleman driver aspect of it and the principally pro-am nature of the racing means that an enormous number of professional drivers owe their career to that level of racing um and yeah there have been some very good guys and girls down through the years uh, but i think you'd have to go an awfully long way to find someone who's had you know a more positive impact on the entire uh, scene over over uh, overall than stefan uh, has had a role, by the way, uh, in the past in other racing too. Was on the board for the Le Mans series for several years before moving away from that. Absolutely, and I've had this conversation with a number of people, including two different ACO presidents, by the way, that uh, the ACO owes him a debt of thanks for effectively saving the Le Mans 24 hours. In the days when I was going for the first times, the majority of the grip was made up by cars that came from the BPR series, so Jürgen Bartz, Patrick Peter and Stefan Rattel, B, P and R um, yeah, I think we have a, a great debt of thanks one other quick thing though, uh, we will see Scott in charge for the final race of the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship at that point we should soon afterwards find out who is going to be replacing Scott as CEO uh, of IMSA they've got very big shoes to fill uh, and not just because of the way that he presents himself publicly, but because of the way that he conducts himself privately and in business matters. And I've had some very big names in motorsport approach me privately and pass on their regrets that we're not going to be dealing with him on a day-to-day basis moving forward. Uh, whatever he decides to do, I hope he enjoys it. Mm. Uh, I think also there there has to be a shout-out to Pierre Fion from the SEO. I mean, when you look at... When you look back from all the melee, and there's plenty of melee at the moment in sports car racing, you look at some of the stuff that's happened since he's been charged at the ACO, uh, particularly with things like the Le Mans 24 Hours, there's been a lot of positives. And the WEC. And the WEC, yeah, Yeah, and the WEC. I mean, you think the the Le Mans 24 Hours, the grid has grown, certainly since I started Mm -hmm. watching it, and we've now got to put them, so we've always got a fight to get an entry to Le Mans 24 Hours, where there was a long period of time when... You would barely fill that that race with 50 cars. We've had Garage 56, which hasn't always been successful, but has produced some really interesting projects. I think the safety changes they've made to the circuit, while not everyone agrees with them, I think they've been less knee-jerk and more understandable to that circuit um, to maintain that that we can still race there. Um, There's plenty to like about what he's done. And beyond that, if we're talking about motorsport administrators, don't forget either the people whose day-to-day job has been around safety, specifically safety. People like Charlie Whiting, God bless his memory, and you know it, it, the guys responsible for some of the medical steps forward. There are numerous people there. Um, Charlie Whiting, and, and, yeah, I won't say this often in my career, but the guys at the FIA who've improved race direction, 
standards. Uh, you know, we celebrated 40 years in the, the business with Rwanda Freitas uh, just a week or so ago. And they bring a level of humanity to this. Yeah, you know what? They're not always the most popular people uh, amongst the drivers. They're not always the most popular people sometimes on the spectator banks. But the reality is... It's not their job to be the most popular. No, it's not. It's their job to make some tough, tough calls at times. But their principal job is to keep everybody safe. And that's an area where, at times, you'll be conflicted. At times, it, you, you, there will be that moment where you think, why have they done that? I wish they'd done that. The decision is going to be made for one reason, one reason only. What keeps us safe? And it's that that means that you and I have had to write remarkably few times in our careers about deaths of people at race meetings. Mm. Yeah, when you our, think of what it was. Our predecessors weren't that privileged. Mm. No, I completely agree. Uh, Sad Boys 2, um, once again, this is the second question of the day on WC Reddit. It says, now that some time has passed and we've seen some renders and some announcements, how do you see the first year of hypercar looking? Do you think it seems healthy? And uh, if you had to guess the number of manufacturers and actual cars on the grid for 2021, what would you guess? Uh, two, uh, plus, I hope, Jim Glickenhouse and his merry band. I hope we see the bicolors. I hope we see some other bits and pieces from uh, some of the specialist manufacturers. But certainly, um, I have an update on where, where we are with Toyota. That's looking pretty good, although still very challenging. Mm-hmm. I've had an update too privately uh, around where we are with the Aston Martin Valkyrie and that looks tight really tight and challenging uh, further confirmation that the numbers that we're talking about uh, elsewhere you know four or perhaps even more are pretty accurate whether or not we'll see those from the very start of the season I strongly doubt I think we're going to be struggling for, for numbers there beyond that uh, I think you and I have both heard the same rumour Stephen about a third manufacturer and we don't know who that is yet that are waiting the wings for season two. I think we know a few people it isn't. Um, but beyond that, there are other things around that could get very exciting indeed. I'm saying nothing quite yet, because there's a bit more sniffing around to be done. But there appear to be moves at the moment that I think could see some very exciting changes uh, in world sports car racing uh, that could make a fundamental difference to the shape of the top class in the very near future uh, for some of the biggest races on the planet. I think I think it'd be worth uh, you giving a little bit of an update for to to the listeners on the Aston project on the basis that when we got a flood of questions through about what the status of that the hypercar program yep. is, uh, it was when it was me and Marshall, and I think you've dug a little bit deeper into that because there's obviously a lot of speculation, a lot of people wondering whether the financials of Aston Martin have any. Thing oh, to do with this, yeah. Um, my thoughts certainly initially was that I don't think that's going to affect this no, program. No. But what, what, what do you think now? You've had a chance to chat to some more people. I've chatted to a lot of people about it. A lot of people in the positions to make some of those decisions. What do I think? I know. I think is the way to do it. Let's let's put it this way. We're talking about two different potential race uh, teams. Maybe more than two, but that would be the Aston Martin factory team, um, and it would be the R Motorsports uh, body that uh, currently races in DTM and in the Blancpain series and the IGTC with their GT3 cars. They're also, the are motorsport guys, the uh, organisation that looks after the commercial aspects of the Valkyrie programme. In effect, they hold the rights to the customer uh, list for the Valkyrie programme. Uh, so they're a natural fit for this. Uh, who might run those cars for them? 
well at the moment in the Blompin series they've got a mix of Arden Motorsport and Jota Sports uh, staff running that I see no reason why that should change both very able organisations as far as the Aston Martin works uh, side of things well we know that the cars are going to be built by Multimatic Multimatic we know have got a um, very skilled race team indeed that operated the Ford programme in the WEC and have certainly contributed um, fully to some of the big races in the States with the uh, Mazda DPI programme uh, it wouldn't be a surprise to me if Multimatic came away with a race deal but I don't think that is done yet as far as the financials are concerned uh, the answer from a pretty senior source at Aston Martin was pretty clear yeah the share price is not performing as we'd hoped it would but this is still going to be a very profitable company at the end of this year and the end of the year after that and we have new product coming so the realities here are don't always be guided by a single headline is it as easy as it was? No. Um, is it the share price that will determine the ability of the company to deliver an individual programme? Not necessarily. And they've got some very smart cookies involved in that. I'd worry less about whether or not it will happen. I'd be worried a little bit more about how quickly those cars can come forward and more to the point, you know, how rushed that programme might be and whether or not we see the number of cars we hope we're going to see early doors. Or, and whether or not those cars are going to be ultimately reliable that early on. That's going to be the important part for me. Hmm. Tom, uh, Thomas Pendergrass says, How is WC GTM cheaper than MC GTD when the cars are more expensive and there's more total running time over the course of a season? I think it, it's an economies of scale, really. Uh, it's a perfect, this is, comes off the back of a remark I know that um, Marshall made a couple of weeks ago, which talked about Ben Keating and his choice to move from a full season in GTD in IMSA to um, a full season in the WEC in GTM with Team Project 1 and he was saying that it is cheaper, it is cheaper it's pro- it's, it's going to be about the economies of scale, Team Project 1 invested heavily in the 911 RSR programme they've got in uh, GTEM that means that they've got the infrastructure they've got the staff, they've got the spares they've got all of that actually all in place Whereas, if you're going to enter your own um, GT3 car in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, you're probably going to have to buy it, is the straight answer. So it's the monetization of the asset, as well as the things that Thomas quite correctly talks about. Starting a season with a 24-hour race, what I'd say as well, by the way, is um, you're right about running time, but actually there are distinct... um, differences in terms of the running time depending how that is delivered so adding 2 hours 40 and 2 hours 40 and 2 hours 40 and 2 hours 40 and 10 hours and 12 hours and 6 hours and 24 hours you will get to the same total if you add 6 and 6 and 6 and 8 and 4 and 24 or thereabouts but if the majority sorry if the majority of your running time is delivered in the major endurance races that is simply more expensive you know you are dealing with the fact that you're going to have more staff on site you're going to have more components wearing out in the middle of those races and needing to be entirely replaced you're going to have to have more spares in place more full rebuilds the cars. more full rebuilds for the cars and then we get into the other aspects that's that's key here which is the logistical aspects been a big push with the wec to try to arrange a calendar where as limited air freighting as possible um needs to be done for these cars that's why we go to some of the places we go to in the order in which we go to them 
uh, shipping is a lot more cheap, a lot cheaper rather than air freighting. One of the things we find from this point on, we won't see a team truck now until Spa at all uh, in the WC. It's containerized from this point until we get to Spa in May next year, April next year actually. Um, whereas for the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, to move from race to race, you need multiple summer trailers. And because the distance is being covered, multiple full-time staff to staff those. Those things come with a price tag. So it's those kind of things that come into it as well as the aspects you completely correctly say, Thomas. Mm. Matt Nieder says, from what I gather, Twisky is pretty bearish on anyone showing up for the SRO IGTC round at Indy in 2020. This is based on a lack of attendance at previous iterations of Grand Am NASCAR and non-Indy 500 IndyCar events. But what if we're all wrong? Uh, well, we might be. I, and that would be great. It uh, would be great. I, d- I don't think you'd see it, Matt, as being something where we're wishing it ill. Well, quite the opposite. I mean, you know, I hope it works. I hope that, you know, the US does get another signature um, endurance event. There's plenty of them. We love them all in different ways. So High-level sports car racing at Indianapolis sounds cool. It does sound cool, but, you know, there's been a record of it not working very well, I think was the point that particularly Marshall was making. And he's, you know, had more experience of these things than I have. It would be difficult for him not to have had because I've never been to Indianapolis. But the the realities, I think, here are that the signs are not good that that will be successful in attracting a major audience. I hope it does. I fear it won't. Um, I've had that conversation with Stefan Rattel about uh, what he wants moving forward for the IGTC, and he's certainly looking for a solution. And, you know, there you go. He's been brave in trying to find that solution, moving on from an event which... He tried and he tried again at Laguna Seca. It didn't work. He, you know, he was open and honest enough to admit that. He's now going to try it in Indianapolis. But the reality in the, in the United States is because you've got such a strong domestic product with the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, it ties down an awful lot of other available options. And they may find that the change to Indianapolis um, gets some teams that maybe do IMSA uh, regularly and go to Laguna Seca frequently that don't go to Indianapolis. It's not a circuit that we race much in terms of GTs, is it? No, it's not. Um, so it might be just that the allure of going to a different circuit that might make the grid a little bit bigger because the grid size at Laguna has always been a little bit of a problem, hasn't it? It has, and I think you know, they've tried various times of the year to run that race. I think the um, the key to it is this. There's, there's various different measures of success with a race. For most continental series, it doesn't necessarily matter if you don't get a massive crowd. It doesn't necessarily matter. There is a degree of participation that um, is directly involved in that. It doesn't matter, for instance, if we don't get 25,000 people at an ELMS race. It doesn't matter. It'd be great if we did, but it doesn't matter if we don't. This, though, is a bit different. This is part of the Intercontinental GT Challenge. This is an attempt by SRO that's been pretty successful at the moment to bind together some successful pre-existing events, to add some more events and to get to the stage where what you've got is a blue ribbon event on every continent. South America still have come, by the way, mm. at some point. And I think it's brave. I think it's got the chance of being pretty successful. Bathurst was already a very successful event. Spa is already a very successful event. The Suzuka, 10 hours now. 
was already a successful event, but is beginning to struggle for a little bit of headway. That, by the way, was the second chance that uh, they got at uh, Asia, because, of course, previously it was the Sepang, the Merdeka race at Sepang, uh, that uh, they tried, and again, that didn't quite work. That certainly wasn't a well-attended yeah. race, that one. Kyle Army, I think, is going to be interesting. I have a feeling Kyle Army could be quite a hit, but that's principally because there's nothing else in South Africa, and I think there's a hunger for it. Um, I'll be interested to see what happens in North America. I'm not that hopeful, but let's wait and see. Chris Ward says... Gentlemen, let's talk IMSA. What will be the first major domino to fall for silly season that hasn't really been discussed? It depends who's been discussing it. Mm. First silly season a domino, that's it. I'll just also say that Jamie Bender has also asked for any updates on IMSA silly season and he's thrown in the um, weekly what's going on with Ford and the driver's question. I think we'll wait for, for Marshall to finish unpacking boxes for that one because he's going to be a lot closer to it. I think the answer is, as Marshall has said previously on Weekend Sports Cars, there's an awful lot of very talented guys at the moment looking for somewhere for that talent to land in 2020. And there doesn't appear at the moment to be um, terribly many places where they're going to find opportunities or options. So I think that's the biggest open question for me. Quite aside from whether or not we find any more shocks coming from people who are expected to be established. I'm getting increasingly concerned, for instance, about the future of the number five Action Express Cadillac programme. I think that one is looking very shaky indeed for a full season and certainly not by any means a shoo-in yet for the NEC either. Um, So that's another one that I'm concerned about. There are very uh, very many more questions than there are answers about what's going on with Ford, but the longer this goes on, the less likely it looks like there's going to be a solution. Mm. Uh, this will scare you Graham I saw a tweet today from Max Pappas did you see this one was he 40 today I think he's 50 50 he's, 50. he's a bronze and he's looking for a drive he's, Max Pappas is a bronze Max Pappas is a bronze he's looking for a drive move anybody away, out there move away from isn't the that scary it Max is very... Pappas is a bronze well you know there's, there's, there's all sorts of people that are going to get a knocking on the door of that I think did somebody tell me that Rubens Barrichello is getting to that stage my god <laughs> <laughs> Look out, everybody. Jesus. Because well, we're getting to that point where the rating system's been around long enough that we're well, finally seeing yeah. some incredibly talented right, well, drivers be downgraded yeah. well, to Well, Tommy Erdos is a great example of it. Yeah. You know, a supremely talented guy that's been out racing for a long time, taking his time to get get back in the groove, but, you know, beginning to see some of the flashes of the old Tommy now. He's loving it. He's absolutely loving it. Mm. J- uh, Jamie Bender says, I'll be heading to Road Atlanta for the first of these sessions. This will be my first trip to Road Atlanta. Do you have any tips on where to watch and things to see or do? I'll have my seven-year-old daughter with me. I uh, want to see and hear the GTs, Corvettes and 911 RSRs one more time. Thank you. You've been to Road Atlanta. I have not. Uh, yeah, it's, I think, one of the best uh, spectator viewing circuits on the planet. There are a number of places where there's really excellent places to watch. And as always, the IMSA crowd is always a very welcoming one for people looking to get those tips and uh, find the best places to to see these magnificent cars in action. Turn 5, looking down onto the cars as they come down into the braking area there is a great place to watch it. Just before the bridge, there's a kind of um, arena area there um, coming down towards the final turn where you get a great uh, view of the cars coming down hard on the brakes, coming through the uh, the right-left combination and getting back on the power under the bridge to complete the lap it's the brand new uh, building that will be opened 
Mm. Uh, for a road land so I'm not sure what's happened to viewing areas around that but is it going to have a spectator balcony or something I don't know I'd have to check that one but the the, the main uh, answer I'd give you is this walk around walk around and find what works for you because the likelihood is it's going to be in one of the major spectator areas or you're going to stumble across a like minded soul um, who will frankly invite you uh, to join them for the day or for the weekend and you will have an absolute ball. But, uh, you know, Road Atlanta, and in particular, particularly Petit Le Mans, uh, this year, I'm not sorry to miss it because I've got other things in my life I want to be doing other than going to, to uh, racetracks and getting on planes to get there. But it is absolutely, should be uh, everybody's bucket uh, bucket list. It's just a great place to go motor racing. It's all mine for one day. One day. Geronimo Lezos says, Hi, I'm feeling pretty dumb for asking this. Don't feel dumb. Come on. No, don't. But... Why are the front tyres not completely covered in prototypes in LMP1, DPR, LMP2? I'll be waiting to hear for you. You guys are great. Thank you very much. I think you probably mean by the, the open bottom yes. Right. So that, that was a fairly recent change. Uh, we used to have the louvres over the um, what's now an open uh, area above the tyres, front and rear on the prototypes. They're coming around the WC time. A little before that. Um, but it's all to do with uh, cars getting airborne. It's to do with reducing pressure uh, under the wheel, uh, under the wheel arches, so that when you get a car that goes sideways or even airborne, it doesn't effectively act as a sail. It reduces the air pressure under there, so it, it basically acts against the car getting airborne and staying airborne. Uh, so it's a safety matter. Certainly, in terms of pure aerodynamics, it would be better if they were closed. But the uh, the problem we found there is when you get a car that, if you like, gets a tap, goes sideways uh, perhaps gets skipped over a curb then what you'll find is the thing just turns into a great big sail Adam Bowman I've heard something about Paul Dallalana stepping away from Aston Martin what's the story not more than I'm aware I mean he's just Patrick Weathering <laughs> Paul has driven other cars in recent uh, years he's been in Ferrari at uh, Daytona he was in AMG at Bathurst fairly recently but uh, as far as I'm aware he's locked and loaded with Ross Gunn and with Darren Turner for a full season of uh, FI World Endurance Championship I, I racing there was, a, there was a question mark before as there always is with gentlemen drivers is are they going to keep coming back because Elman it's up for them at the end of the season to decide whether they want to come back and I mean when I spoke to Paul at, uh, at Le Mans back in June before he'd made the formal decision and announcement he was coming back he seemed very much up for it yeah no, I mean Paul is very open um, but what it comes down to is two things that uh, need to be taken into account before you get into his choice of car. He is a very successful businessman, which means he's busy, and he's a family man, which means he's busy. And, and he lives in Canada, which means he's <coughs> bears. And that makes you even busier. Well, you know, he's, he's fended off bear attacks at this point, as far as I can tell, but the, the I think the main point here is you know, he'll make his choices. He's very loyal to the Aston Martin brand. He seems very happy at the moment with his lot with the new Aston Martin uh, you know, V8 Vantage and let's wait and see how that one pans out with a very different looking team to the number 98 with Darren and Ross aboard Patrick Webbington, what do you think about Simone Di Silvestro signing to be a Porsche, Porsche test driver in Formula E you got any ideas where this could lead does this mean she can no longer be a part of the all female team at Daytona it, it doesn't mean that it could eventually see a clash for Simona and for others as well Thomas Prining of course is the other um, named test driver there might well be clashes uh, in there but it doesn't necessarily mean that's the case generally speaking 
Um, major manufacturers do see benefit from their younger test and development drivers getting plenty of racing experience. Porsche is a great example of that. And we've seen that through the GTM programs in WC and ELMS in recent years where the junior drivers have been cycled through there. Julian Andlauer, Matt Campbell, Matteo Caroli, Thomas Prining, uh, Dennis Olsen. All those guys have actually been through the Dempsey Protons, the Golf Racing UK, the Team Project One uh, efforts um, to move forward and make a determination or help Porsche to make a determination who are going to be the factory drivers of the future. See, see Simona is being no different. Buddy Campbell says, we've heard a lot about Marshall's music taste, but we haven't really heard too much from you two. What have Graham and Stephen been listening to lately? Oh, go on, you can go first. I mean, I listen to a variety of stuff. Um, I have spoken about my music taste briefly on the podcast before. Have you? Uh, yeah, we got asked about it before, about what's the most embarrassing thing you listen to. Hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I... I usually listen to music either while I'm working because it helps me concentrate if I listen to slow music. So I do listen to like jazz and jazz. I, I listen to jazz. This is like Gregory Porter stuff like that. But when I'm not listening to Gregory Porter and when I'm not working, I uh, love Free Eleven. They've got a new album. They're fantastic. Um, I, is that the, a Lotus? Keen have got a new album. Um, is which it, is just, he a Lamborghini driver? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Bit of country music, going to a country music concert very soon. Going to see Brad Paisley. Can, can, big can fan I tell of Brad my Paisley. Can I tell my favourite joke about country music? Go on. All of it. What 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 do you get if you play a country music record backwards? You get your truck back, you get your dog back, you get your wife back, you get your house back. <laughs> dear, dear. And uh, I'm a massive fan of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. All all time favourite artist, uh, Tom Petty. Sadly passed away, so I'll always listen to him. I remember you being very sad about that. Uh, um, Mortified, still am. I'm a bit of an old git, and uh, I'm a bit of an old punk. Actually. So you listen to Pete Tong doing IB for classics? I do actually. I've got I've, I've got a ridiculous. That's a great working album. I've so, got yeah. a completely ridiculously eclectic musical taste, uh, which at the well on a plane, I listen to quiet music. So I have a little playlist on my iPod that's um, on my iPhone that actually has just quieter stuff that you know I can drift off to sleep and snore and annoy the person sitting next to me. To, which has got all sorts on it's got you know it has got some kind of um, dance music so it, it has got some kind of pretty um, old school Motown and Soul music on it and I tend to go through phases where there are artists people like Sam Smith Adele would you believe actually on there which is actually well, I just thought that was because of your little one no 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 the stuff that my little one listens to you really want to want to listen to <laughs> so you, you catch yourself thinking I really don't like that but then again, if she could hear what I used to listen to when I was her age, I've probably got no reason to actually tell her off for that one. So, you know, having a 16-year-old around, it, it's, it's actually interesting because I do actually have quite a lot of conversations with her, quite often about music that she likes, but sometimes about music that I like that she realises that she likes. And there is one thing, it's a really strange one, that um, it keeps popping up on my um, uh, YouTube uh, welcome page simply because I've played it quite a lot and it's the um, tribute from the two girls uh, behind Hearts to Led Zeppelin never a band by the way I was that into um, and they do a version of <coughs> excuse me Stairway to Heaven never a favourite of mine but it's amazing uh, they did that at the Kennedy Awards some years ago and I do urge you 
to listen to it and to watch that piece of film because it's really a highly emotional piece of video and piece of audio and yeah oddly enough that did get me to kind of look back and think is there anything else by Led Zeppelin I quite like and the answer is no it's not very much by Led Zeppelin they like that it's rather sad but I do tend to kind of look about a bit to see whether or not there's anything I've missed it tends to be older stuff rather than newer stuff mm. and that's probably a mark of the fact that I'm now in my middle 50s and headed towards the other side than anything else but um, through my life I have changed my musical tastes an awful lot I've been through periods where it's been punk, been through periods where it's been soul, a little bit of classical, um, still there in the background. Uh, yeah, a little bit of kind of, a little bit of dance music is kicking around there for various periods of time. And of course, there are songs that actually mean something to you and those close to you. And they're the ones that get me every time. I'm going to give one, like you've said, you're urging the listeners to go and listen to something. I'm going to give one bit of homework for everyone to do. There is a song that pretty much everyone will know which is You Get What You Give by the New Radicals which came out in the early 2000s they did one album before they decided they weren't they weren't in it for the fame and they didn't want to do anything else that album which I don't believe any of the other songs have ever really made charts or singles or anything is epic it's an epic album from start to finish if you've never heard it go and listen to it it's called Maybe You've Been Brainwashed Too so if so if you do listen to it and you are disappointed you can get Stephen on Stephen dot no Doug Bonham not related to John or Jason in the, in the light of uh, in the light of oh, did the music. Auction house. <laughs> so it's much to his regret. It's fun question time. We'll we'll with the judge allowed. We will. Uh, in the honour of the WC at Fuji and its famous circuit safari, if you could go and do a circuit safari at any Ooh. race in history, where would it be? Any race um, in where, history. Where and when would it be? Well, the key to it is this: the, the, you've got to think about what circuit safari is. So you could go and do something like the Millimilia, but the car's only going to get past you once and then it's done. So that I can assure you, on the Millimilia, you get passed by the same things a lot of times. Right. It. But either way, but there you go. Um, not on a bus, you wouldn't. Well, if it was a very quick bus. Think Speed, think Keanu Reeves. Let's talk movies. <laughs> <laughs> We're so, very tired, I'm sorry. Um, for the pure experience of it, it's the most terrifying thought imaginable. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. But I think Circuit Safari at the Indy 500 might be quite fun. That's not what I thought you were going to say. That's a great one, actually. That's a really because good one. Because it is the, the, the impression, having done Which it. Which year? This is when. Oof. You got to, have you got, were you a big fan of like Indy 500 back in the day yeah. when you had Grand Prix drivers there and the all bit the of stuff that, that Marshall learned? Late 60s and, and actually then into the kind of 80s now, it went at real, real speed. Real mm. speed. I think that's the point. I would like to think that most of us, if not all of us, have sat trackside and watched cars go past at real speed. There's something about being on that track and being in a slightly elevated position as these things go tearing by you. And they're barely at reduced speed in the circuit safari. There's something particularly spectacular. Um, yeah, something like that I uh, think would be stunning. I'm going to go for um, the 2013 running of the... Nurburgring 24 hours on the basis that 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 is one of in the races that I've covered and certainly watched Mm -hmm. over the years that is one of the races I always remember that was the year that Sean Edwards won it that was the year that Maxime Martin produced one of the best drives in the world I've ever seen in the thundering rain that was the year that Alan Simonson was out of his mind in that Bill Bill Stein livery um, Aston um, that race with that many amazing drivers with Bernd Scheider driving we had 
just uh, just a slew of incredible cars and drivers. And that was back when the Nurburgring Green Twenty Four Hours had over two hundred cars, and there was some seriously wacky stuff going yep. around at the back. That race in those conditions, it would be terrifying. It would be horrifying. It would be a hundred percent more dangerous. I think a hundred percent more dangerous in the wet. Yeah, um, oh. but my god, that would be an experience. Yeah, tribute there to one of our good friends. <laughs> yes, racing the rain more dangerous, and then apply percentage. <laughs> Alex Eichmiller says Mazda announced their TCR car finally how closely related to streetcars are TCR cars Mazda hasn't had a performance version of the 3 since the previous generation does the TCR car mean that we may see a performance road car version of it again soon I hope we do I mean Mazda they've got a proud record of you know of sporting versions of their cars and you know there are very few major marks that have actually invested as much in Smaller sports cars, for that matter, with the MX-5 and Miata. Just grassroots racing with, yeah, with yeah. Mazda. It's yeah. great. I hope we do. Um, firm fan of hot hatchbacks. I've had a few in my past. I think I, TCR is a platform as well. Yeah, I've had a few in my past. Tend to have been French at the time. That The car's not me. I'm not French. Um, but And they've been massive, massive fun. Not had much of an opportunity to drive much by way of more modern hot hatches. But, you know, those that do tell me they are... What about that Nissan Note outside? That's a hot hatch. It might be if it overheats. That's about it. <laughs> that, 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 that power delivery the when power you put delivery. your foot down this morning going up that hill. Yeah. I've never seen anything like it. Well, you had plenty, if you were standing <laughs> as it went by, you've had plenty of time to watch. It's, <laughs> it's, it's uh, certainly... It, I, I, I'm not sure what it's got under the, um, under the hood, mm. but I think possibly it could be a sewing machine. But... Um, <laughs> But no, hot hatches are magnificent things. I'd like to think that, yes, mm-hmm. someone will see the, the, the opportunity to have something that builds on the enthusiasm for the TCR. Great-looking car, and again, a great-looking livery from Mazda. I must admit, I'd like to be walked around a TCR with somebody who knows their stuff from a manufacturer to yep. find out, actually, how close they relate to streetcars. I've got a feeling, isn't the, the Hyundai TCR like a, a special because it didn't quite fit the regulations in terms of doors we, well, like we, have we, they've got two haven't they because the Veloster yeah. as well as the, the i30 yeah I've got uh, the TCRs. I remember hearing about that in the Daytona press room there's, there's all sorts of nuances around TCRs but the reality is they're a pretty spec car um, you know there aren't going to be many kind of Mazda 3s they've got 350 horsepower by the way um, but the I think the reality is they are Reasonably close, certainly dimensionally. Okay, they've all got the kind of the fantastic flair. There's plenty of road car components in there. Oh yeah, there yeah. Are, even things like GT4. I'm having a conversation pretty recently with a GT4 driver, and telling me remarkably that if you shunt a GT4 car or some of them, it can be more expensive to repair than the GT3 version because of the sheer amount of tough to get road car parts you have to buy. Yeah, um, it's. I wouldn't be surprised if there were plenty of. Plenty of uh, road legal parts. It's one we can look into. Mm, certainly. Joshua Ponce says, MP or GG? With GT-Lemonims, are pretty much only having two Corvettes, two Porsches, and one Ferrari running next year in the 2020 season. Um, isn't, is he BMW? Missing, he's missing BMW. Uh, I thought he was missing something. Um, and beyond. Does that does it make sense to just have one GT class with a Pro and Anfield of uh, GT3s? I think it comes to I, I bizarrely came come to recording this podcast from having just had a conversation inside the sports car paddock with Pascal Zalendon from Porsche, and I was asking a not dissimilar question. I think the answer is Porsche are pretty happy with the way things are in terms of their customer base in both GTLM uh, slash GTE and GT3. 
and I suspect that several others are too. I'm not. I'm hearing more manufacturers that are happy with the current state of affairs that are unhappy. And whilst that continues to be the case, and there's a relatively healthy market in customer cars in GTE, particularly obviously in Europe, but also beyond, I don't see it changing anytime soon. Will we get to a tipping point? I think if we lose another big one, we might. But then again, we might gain one. Hmm. Watch this space. James Counter says, Extreme E, there seem to be a number of big names signing up for the driver pool. Why is it attracting so many sports car drivers like Lotterer, Senna, Leg and Chadwick? Extremely, I don't know why extreme he is. No idea. Genuinely, have no idea. Let's pretend we know. No one will notice. I think it's because the dimensions of the cars, Graham. If I'm honest, I, I think it's because they're similar to sports cars. No, <laughs> I'm guessing this is something to do with taking of um, an awful lot of those recreational drugs in nightclubs. It's because most of the uh, sports car drivers that are involved there go to nightclubs quite a lot. It's embarrassing. Like, I've never heard of it. I'm just too busy. I, I know, I'm too busy. It's just that's that's the problem, isn't it? We spend so much time watching sports cars. See what you the keep last, talking. We I'm were looking it. at we were watching we were watching DTM on the screens in the press room earlier, um, and I realised that the last time I watched DTM was when I was spectating at a DTM race at the Nurburgring about four or five years ago. And I don't think I've watched a single moment of DTM since. And that's not because I don't like DTM. I happen to think the cars are awesome and they sound good. Um, and as a package, although the racing has not always been as good as it should be, it's it produces some good racing. You just don't get the time to sit and watch this stuff because it's either happening while you're at another racetrack or yep. when you have a weekend where you don't need to watch racing you watch other things yep. do other things or have a life uh, yep. um, Extreme E is do it, you have a life is Extreme E possibly that um, electrically powered off-road championship could be that is it that could be let's talk as, as if it's that for a moment I don't know why so many people involved in it <laughs> <laughs> terribly sorry I know we sound like we're being dismissive but um, I don't know I have no idea. But let's move on to another question from James Counter, and hopefully this will be a bit better. Sorry, James. He says, what do you think of Toyota's seeming trend at the moment to be entering Toyota badge cars in the shape of the Supra in the um, in the WC, but more notably Class 1? WC? Oh, Toyota badge cars uh, in the WC. The Supra, presumably... In the shape of the Supra. Well, the shape of the Supra, we've got uh, allegedly the NASCAR, which is not yes, the shape okay. of the Supra. Yes, OK, maybe that's what he means. Uh, um, yeah. Do you think it's just an ebb away from the LFA towards the Supra? Is it just a more conscious effort to try and sell more Toyotas that are cheaper and more affordable, or something else? I, I, I'm guessing this is Toyota rather than Lexus. Mm. That might well be... Uh, that might well be it. I'm guessing that's because of the GT500 shift mm. towards... Uh, Supra. Supra's new. Supra is something that it's a reintroduction of an iconic uh, model name back into the Toyota uh, model range. And pretty clearly, when you're getting into niche models, the profit margin on those models tends to be higher. So, yes, at the moment it's a bit of it's it's a kind of sub halo brand mm. for uh, for Toyota. Uh, they're keen on pushing two things the experiential and the technological the technological comes with the hybrid stuff the experiential comes with their sports cars and I don't think that's a particular surprise we'll say that I think the uh, the alleged NASCAR Supra thing is possibly one of the most horrendous things I've ever seen in my life it's the kind of thing that you know you would expect one of your you know, preschool kids to come back and be proud of, and you have to be kind of slightly patronising. Yeah, that looks really great. It doesn't. It's horrendous. <laughs> um, but uh, the GT500, I think, is a much better go at it. 
uh, having now seen some of the Supras on the road. Um, I like it. I do. It's not one that I think is immediately beautiful, but neither do I think it's the head-turningly uh, head ugly thing that some people imply that it is. It's got pretty good proportions. It's, I mean, Toyota will want to sell the Supra as a brand, like you say, because it's been a bit dormant for a while. It's, yep. For me, the Supra is what the GTR is to Nissan. It's a car that they can place, certainly styling cues, but certainly um, aero design and and transfer and technology over to a variety of different programs. If you look at what GTR has yeah. had influence in, in, in Nissan's programs over the years. And actually, that's worked. Yeah, well, I think Toyota have been pretty brave with the, the Supra brand. They've been brave in a number of ways. They've reinvented it a number of times. They've just done it again. And they've allowed it to lie fallow for a while as well. Before which, is, it which is good. Yeah. Because but the Ford been... with the GT, it felt, felt special. It felt big that the Ford GT was coming back because you don't just get a Ford GT every year. You, know, you get one about every three years. <laughs> yeah, and it lasts about three years. And then yeah. you get people asking you for two more years... What's happening to them? And then where you go. <laughs> Pete Hernandez says, Hi guys, do you know of any teams running Aston Martin Vantages and IMSA next season in GTL or GTD? They'd be a great addition to the grid. No, at the moment, uh, no, there's still a push to try to make that happen, uh, but not quite at the level that it was previously. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, principally because they've not been able to find a partner team that will invest in the required infrastructure and running budgets for those cars but also because, of course, things have moved on for the core company, for their product range, and for their motorsport aspirations. And so, not at the moment. Daniel Summersgill, and we're coming towards the end of the questions here, Graham. This, Are we? Uh, and I really like this, this question, because it ties into a lot of the discussions that we've had today. He says this is a WC slash fun question. He says, with the 2021 WC calendar due to be issued in December, are there any new tracks you think the WC should go to but has not been to or um, but has not been to since 2012? Hashtag me personally, I would like to see them race at Laguna Seca or Donington Park. Would uh, would be great to see LMPs or hypercars coming through the crane of curves. Right, okay. Um, what can we say about this? There's a story coming. Um, so we're not going to say, say very much about it. What we can say is that the teams um, have been polled about uh, what they like about the current uh, calendar and they've been given uh, some ideas of the sorts of places that uh, the championship might go to next it's been pretty common currency in this paddock so I expect that if we don't write it first someone else will uh, I'm not going to tell you where they're going to go because we don't know I expect there might be nine races for next season I expect we might see a couple of changes um, and I think that's a pretty good thing actually mm. I think it's a good thing to mix it up uh, it'll be interesting to see where some of those choices are going to be made. One thing we can more or less um, confirm is that Silverstone will still be on the calendar because we've already seen the LMS calendar and it's already there. And we've also seen that uh, there might well be a prospective um, uh, support race for that. Uh, but there are some races, I think, at the moment at the end of their licence with the uh, FIWC and there's some others that perhaps given the opportunity for teams uh, and the manufacturers to say whether or not they're still as popular as they were, might not be as popular as they were, but um, the ones that I think at the moment are absolutely safe, Silverstone, because we know already it's on a calendar, um, the Sebring doubleheader looks absolutely nailed in, the Le Mans 24 hours, Spa, oh. I would struggle to see that one falling, more it's or less everything been else. too long, isn't it? Yeah, more or less, yeah. because it's in a handy place for a pre-Le Mans uh, race too. Um, more or less everything else I'm not saying they're at risk but you know all bets are off I think we're going to see I think we're going to see a couple of surprises my guidance to you is that they're likely to be more pleasant surprises mm, yes 
Andrew Marshall says, is Panels going to run uh, their GT4 car in IMSA and are they planning on building a GT3 car? I must admit, I don't really know much in the terms of how the Panels operation is working now since, since obviously, uh, since, Don passed since away. Since Don passed away. Uh, and I've not caught up either. And I think, again, that's one we will... Uh, give the hospital pass to uh, to Marshall to find out for when he's back with us. We hope next week. Uh, Kiwi Chong says so. Apparently, um, James Hinchcliffe has been a naughty boy over in IndyCar land. Naturally, <laughs> is this extreme me again. Um, naturally, this has me wondering which sports car racers are going to be featured in DSC's body issue. Interesting. In Le Mans fashion, you must include someone from the LMS and ALMS, a gentleman driver from IMSA, as well as a garage 56 entry. My God, this is a complex body issue. The body issue. So it's like I'm. I imagine he's talking about um, like the ESPN body issue, which ESPN had. I don't know if it's still around, but they certainly have for a long time a magazine. And once a year, they would do the body issue, which was showing off athletes' bodies, like genuinely full bodies. Yeah. Um, and like doing in-depth feature content into fitness and stuff like that. So basically they're saying, can you find as many fat people as possible um, from the Le Mans paddock? Um, also, no. Um, it, yes. It, this, uh, <laughs> some of them in the press room. Some of them are in this room. Um, so, so, okay. In Le Mans fashion, you will include someone from the LMS and ALMS. Okay, so who from the European Le Mans series and Asian Le Mans series would you put in the DSC body issue? Who's got a good body? It's a bizarre question. <laughs> I'm okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one out there because he's been in the LMS before. Chris Hoy, I'd like to see them thighs. Those thighs are ridiculous. Chris's um, thighs. I mean, bear in mind, you know, I have some waist on me. Chris's thighs were, were, were broader than my waist. Um, so, so Chris Hoy, yes, yes. Uh, any more from Asian Le Mans? You're more familiar with with people in Asian Le Mans. Who's who's the fittest driver? Do you think in the Asian Le Mans paddock in terms of? Genuinely, you mean fitness rather than fitness fit, rather than the, 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 the nuanced. Oh, they're fit. He's fit. <laughs> <laughs> this is a disturbing conversation. This is a bizarre have. one. Um, I'll tell you what I think it would be an interesting story, rather than just the kind of the aesthetics of it. Mark Patterson. Mm. Now, Mark, sixty-eight years old this year, um, has been in the Asian Mom Series paddock. Is the wet paddock now with high class racing is set to become the oldest ever driver at the Le Mans 24 Hours next year. Um, and I think his story in terms of fitness regime, um, keeping up that uh, fitness regime through a furiously busy uh, business schedule, hugely successful businessman, as well as being at the top of his sport. And the number of times I've had young drivers who've driven alongside him, and of course the guys, you know, when they're on a racing week or a race weekend, particularly away from... Uh, home market, you know, trained together as well, who told me that 68-year-old Mark Patterson can absolutely destroy them on a bike ride. Uh, I'd like to hear how he does that. Mm. And we know already his kind of recovery powers from pretty serious injury are pretty good as well, despite uh, being you know, in his now late 60s. So I think Mark Patterson would be an interesting uh, example on that front. And someone from IMSA? Someone from IMSA. Good question. I'd like to know how just how it is that Juan Pablo Montoya stays as round as he is, um, and as quick as he is, as, and as quick as he is. How does he overcome the sheer mass? <laughs> and a garage fifty-six entry finally. Garage fifty-six entry. Garage fifty-six entry. For, 
<laughs> can I can I say something? And in the most tasteful way possible, because um, I think we 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 yeah, heard, we say heard, something very no, controversial. No, 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 no. It's not. It's not going to be. I don't mean it to be controversial. Um, but I'd like to know more about Fred Sose and how he does it. Okay, that's because a, I know that's a cool, I know that's I know, a cool one. I know my basics about how that what happened yeah. Um, yeah. when he did Gary 56 at Le Mans for those that do you know what I'd like to know more about his perspective from his perspective of what he's feeling how he's doing it how he trained himself to do that because it was remarkable for those that don't know what Stephen's talking about here Fred Sose um, was the final the last Gary 56 entrant and actually the only Gary 56 entrant to finish the race Fred's story is remarkable um, a pretty successful businessman in his own right then um suffered a viral infection I think it became a flesh eating viral infection which meant that he had to have preventative surgery uh, to stop this from killing him which meant that he lost all of his limbs Um, so um, quadruple amputee and he drove uh, an LMP2 Morgan uh, Ligier if you like in in old money uh, at Le Mans some years ago and is now heading up um, the academy, the Fred Sose Academy, to help three similarly, well, not similarly, but to three other disabled athletes to come through into LMP racing with a view that they might race at Le Mans uh, in the very near future. And you're right, that's a cracking call. Her Hannah Alt, there's, I'm sorry, but there's no topics this week from Rob Chalmers. Um, so you've made an error there. He says the Porsche Taycan recently set a 24-hour record of 3,425 kilometres in 24 hours, including charge time, thanks to an 800-volt powertrain using roadside spec chargers. How long do you think it will be before the one uh, kilovolt plus systems reduce charge times um, to where they can be run in endurance events? And I, I'll quickly say, I think by the time we'd get there, hydrogen will probably already be overtaken that. I, I think there's 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 a new race and the race here is um, which technology is going to win this battle uh, because we could end up with a massive split here with broadly half the the auto industry going down the electric charging plug-in hybrid battery blah 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 and the other half going down the hydrogen fuel cell route my view is one will win one of the reasons, why, by the way, I think it will be difficult to sustain both is the sheer investment that will be needed in infrastructure to fuel and charge. Uh, so that is going to require, I think, a huge amount of industry and public investment to make that happen. Um, but I tend to agree with you. I think there's every potential, Rob, that we could get there quite quickly with uh, that existing but developing technology. But it's a matter of whether or not that's going to be ultimately the right solution. When we talk about these these kind of matters, I always think back to a conversation I had in my time um, in government, when one of the kind of the areas that I, would, I looked after in government was vehicle standards. Uh, it was the kind of technology that at that stage was coming forward to be, you know, uh, part of the regulatory framework. And I can remember uh, one of my then ministers uh, sharing with me, then privately, now long, long in the annals of history that he felt that a mistake had been made when looking at the cleaner technologies at the time that were available for uh, road cars and putting them into production what was going to be standard and the, the choice came down to lean burn or catalytic converters catalytic converters got the nod 
and his view expressed to me nearly 30 years ago was that he felt that was actually a mistake I think he was right mm. yeah. it is a, an odd time for the automotive industry for many reasons and one of them is because we've got so many different technologies at different stages of their development and we haven't yet realised where we want to be in terms of infrastructure for one of them no indeed it's a bit like the way that TVs have gone recently there was a battle for everyone to go for 3D telly and by the time everyone had brought out 3D telly 3D tellies weren't interesting anymore no. then it was curved TVs and everyone yeah. brought out a curved TV and by the time we got that actually nobody really, really wanted curved TVs now it's 4K TVs it's a bit like that with with hybrid and then plug-in hybrid and electric and hydrogen and you know all these different things coming people out people are looking one. for an edge People What's going to be the one that we're all actually driving? Because we we aren't at a point yet where all of a sudden everyone's driving a hybrid. That's still not a thing. No, it's not. And, and by the time we got to that point, we don't even. What we have got to point is that every range has now got the option. Mm. Now, clearly, that's going to be a tipping point because that's going to be a point at which people are going to be asked when they arrive at a showroom to decide: Do you want the standard version? Do you want the hybrid version? Do you want the full electric version? And that's becoming more of a thing. And that's happened remarkably quickly, to the extent that you can no longer afford to be in mainstream manufacture for uh, an automotive product without that being. Okay, yes, when you get to the really high-end stuff, that's less likely to be the case, real boutique manufacturers. But um, now when you're getting to the stage where the likes of Aston Martin are kind of full electric um, Lagonda in the pretty near future, yeah, we're in a different world now. Um, What it then comes down to is what happens to the traditional experiential stuff and that's where I think it's really interesting that's where we get to the stage where you've got to look at who's doing what and why are they doing it when you speak to some of the people involved with the big automotive brands that are still active in motorsport they're still active in um, uh, in the kind of customer cars that are built purely for driving pleasure particularly things like track days etc you start to get some really interesting answers again Pascal's London today had some interesting stuff to say on it I've actually got somewhat delayed but I'm hoping that it'll be on DSC on Monday interview I did with Chris Renke from um, Audi Customer Racing Audi Sport Customer Racing uh, some weeks ago and he directly addressed that point I've had the same conversation, for instance, with Lawrence Tomlinson at Janetta. He addressed that point directly. Their view is that we're not yet at the point where the emotion, or for that matter, the repeatability of the performance of an electric car is at the point where it's going to stop us from wanting um, you know, something that's a rather more traditional, high-performance vehicle purely for the pleasure of it. We've not yet crossed there, and that's got some way to go yet. Mm. Two more questions first of the two is from Smoking Puppy 841 who says a theoretical team has purchased two LMP2 cars uh, for variety will say they're Legios and they intend to race them in which series would you like to see them compete your challenge is you can split one in one series and one in another but the same, same chassis cannot do ELMS and Asian Le Mans um, I'd like to see uh, an increase in the numbers in both Asian Le Mans series and in IMSA mm. is what I'd like to see them Oddly enough, we've got a team that's doing exactly that, and that's Rickware Racing. Um, so I think I'd like to see that, because I think they're both areas where they would uh, profit from an increase in numbers and in variety. ELMS has got plenty, and they've got more coming. 
uh, WC has got enough I'd like to see a Ligier in WC though I think Ligier, yep. Ligier should have a presence in there with a team that's good enough to compete Yeah. because um, if we had three of the four manufacturers in WC I think I just think for the world championship for the premier championship for those cars it should have that variety it should be big guns customers racing for all of them it's a good call um, Neil Hardy the final question says uh, as you're in Asia where GT4 is yet to take off do you think it would make sense to combine GT4 and TCR in Asia similar to the way that Pilot Challenge does it in the USA and have Blanc Pan Asia as a standalone GT series this is an interesting one there's all sorts of stuff going on here and again oddly enough there's another of those interviews that was done with Audi um, which was with Martin Kula from uh, Audi Sport in Asia and we talked about exactly this why is it that GT4 has not taken off and there's a series of very good reasons I urge you to read what Martin Said, says about it um, and where GT2 might kind of sit in that uh, that arena I, I think all bets are off really there, one of the major reasons why it's unlikely to be the case that that format will come forward is because the vested interest that SRO have got in GT4 and don't have any vested interests of course in TCR mm. so it's going to be about pushing their product would they be open to it if it push came to shove maybe would there be the potential for some kind of alliance with an organisation that had that? Well, there is an organisation that has that um, that punch. Unfortunately, in this instance, it's a very organisation that split away from the other part of, of the organisation that became GT Asia, because uh, the, the guys that split away from the guys that joined forces with Blompan, still active, both in GT racing in China, but also in touring car racing with TCR in Asia. So the reality is there... I don't think that's going to happen any time soon. I would like to see it though, because uh, yeah. uh, from what I watched of Pilot Challenge, and I've actually watched quite a lot of it this year, the combination of GT1 and TCR is really good. It's yeah. a really good multi-class thing. It's like what we've got with British GT with GT3 and GT4 as a two-class system. Yeah, they're they're different enough looking, oh, and yeah. they, they're performance-wise, they're different enough that it creates really good racing. If only there could be just a little less ass hattery out on those tracks. Yes, and if only there wasn't multiple rain showers during every race. There you go. Uh, it would be utterly perfect. Guys, thank you very much for that. Thank you to you, Stephen, for giving up a little more of your evening as we drift towards uh, unconsciousness on air and indeed towards uh, race day tomorrow. I do want to wish Marshall well, though. He's obviously having, the, having to go through that move at the moment and uh, we, I wish him all the best. I haven't really had the chance to say that when I've been on the podcast. And I, I do want to say that I appreciate you letting me on, Marshall, and I hope you're doing well um, and I hope to see you soon. Uh, yeah, you and me both, uh, fellow, you and me both. This has been the Week in Sports Cars um, Katemba Hotel Room with, uh, by the way, a spectacular spectacular view of Mount Fuji in the moonlight uh, beyond us. Um, I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Stephen Kilby. Thanks again, of course, to our good friends at Cooper Tyres, our friends too at the Justice Brothers. We will be back with the show and I think with Marshall Pruitt and myself next week when I hope to be joining you from the less salubrious but altogether more welcoming surrounds of the DSC headquarters back in the UK it's not shed good night